The passage just this morning comes out of Second Peter chapter three. I'm going to read verses one through thirteen. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God. And that, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. Good morning. Happy Sunday. And uh, we are trucking through Second Peter. Um, We've got this sermon, and then next week, and we are wrapping it up. And uh, Mitch will be back the week after that. And fortunately, he's preaching in Chattanooga today, so he's getting a little bit of that out of his system. Otherwise, I would urge you to bring a sack lunch uh, the Sunday that he comes back, because I'm sure he has a lot that's been building up. Um, but let me just say, I, I am ridiculously, almost embarrassingly excited about this sermon. Um, I think this passage, if you want to understand Second Peter, you want to get to kind of the point, the heart of it, uh, this is it. And we're going to see some amazing things today um, based on the specific context of Second Peter, what he's addressing with the, the false teachers and what they're deceiving these people with. And Peter's been kind of rebuffing them and rebutting them. And, and today he kind of brings it home for us and says, hey, here's the issue. Here's the point. Remember this. And so I, I am pumped to jump in. Um, so let me pray, and we'll just do that. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you um, that you are wise, and you are loving, and merciful, and sovereign, and holy, and good, and you do good for us continually, and that you are patient Lord, and, and you wait and you long for your people to come to you and to repent and to rest and trust in your salvation. And I pray that we would see that this morning. Um, Father, may we be encouraged by your word. May, may we be lifted up and, and built up in love and in, in uh, anxiousness for you to return. And Father, may you, may you help us to develop as little 
pictures of Christ that we would live holy, godly lives and make him look good. Do all of that for us today, Father, uh, as we see your word, as we hear from you. May your spirit come and open our eyes and transform us. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, so for the past couple of weeks, again, since we're going verse by verse through Second Peter, I just want to give you the context in case you, you haven't been with us. Um, for the past couple of weeks, we've seen Peter kind of building his case against these false teachers, okay? So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about there are these false teachers that are undermining what the apostles had been teaching, undermining what Peter had been teaching, and Peter comes along and he does a couple of things. He establishes his authority and the apostles' authority as being in line with the Old Testament prophets. He says, hey, we're in that tradition. We are standing on their foundation and teaching the, the first further revelation of Jesus Christ. So they prophesied, they predicted certain things. We saw those things. We saw the fulfillment of that prophecy. And so we have authority just like they did. And you should listen to us. And then we saw last week, he kind of turns his attention to the false teachers themselves and says, here's why you shouldn't buy what those guys are saying. They're, they're teaching false truth. They're teaching a lie. And you shouldn't listen to them because of A, B, C, and D. We saw some of those things last week. And, um, and we've seen through both of those sermons that really the crux of what the false teachers were teaching was that Christ, although he promised that he was leaving and he would return in glory, and although the prophets had said that we are waiting on the day of the Lord for him to come and enact judgment and to judge the world with equity and to reward those who, who trust in him. Although all that has been said for thousands of years, these false teachers are saying it's not true. Look around. It's not true. We, we can't trust that. In fact, what we should do is just try to be as happy as we can here and take advantage of every pleasure available to us and and just live good, happy lives, and don't worry about what those apostles and prophets are saying. Because if what they were saying was true, something would have already happened. Okay? So that's where we are. And, and so Peter's been kind of building his case. Hey, I have authority as, an, as a disciple of Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and these guys clearly do not match with what Jesus has revealed to us, so don't listen to them. And then today, he turns his attention to that particular piece of their false teaching, that, that Jesus Christ is not returning in glory. He will not come back and judge the earth. Don't worry about that. Don't believe that. Peter takes that head on. Okay, so that's what we're going to see today. And let's just jump right in like we've been doing and, and walk through his argument. So he says in verse 1, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Um, so he kind of reminds us, before he, he takes that argument head on, he, he restates his purpose for writing to these people, right? Uh, as we saw in chapter 1, he says, I'm writing these things to stir you up by way of reminder. And here he says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And, and just to recap, what is he reminding them of? So I'm, I'm writing to stir you up. If you'll remember something, it'll stir up your mind, it'll stir up your life and and he's been cleared what he's reminding them of. And he says in verse 2, very explicitly again, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he's saying, I'm writing to remind you once again of 
the prophets and the apostles of your Lord. I'm reminding you of what they've said. And if you'll remember that, it will stir you up. It will, it will re-energize you. It will revolutionize the way you're living if you'll remember. So, and remember, we've made that connection several times. Prophets, apostles, we have their writings. We have what they were teaching in the scripture. So Peter's saying, if you go to the word... If you read what these prophets wrote and what us apostles are writing, it will stir up your heart. It will reinvigorate you with a love for Christ, and it will transform your life. Um, we could stop right there. That, that could be the whole sermon today. I mean, there's a, a whole sermon here about the connection of your mind to the Scriptures. That He says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by reminding you of the Scriptures, of these, these writings And so I just want to put a bullet point here and say, God does not intend to bypass your mind as a Christian. He gave you a rational faculty to hear truth and to read truth and to think and to assess arguments and to hear people trying to compel you to believe certain things. And and he gave you all those things and he says, use those to wrestle with the, the reality of the universe, to wrestle with what you're being told and discern what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. He he doesn't call us to just close our eyes and get off in a corner in a dark space with you know some good music playing and just clear our minds and don't think of anything and just just disappear for a little while. That's not Christian meditation, all right? He calls you to use your mind and to renew your mind and to set your mind on things. Set your mind on truth. Um, he doesn't call you to be an intellectual. Let's be clear on that. He's, he's not talking about your mind separate from your affections, from your emotions. Okay? He doesn't call you to be an academic. God doesn't care if you can articulate you know, all the bullet points of Calvin's Institutes. He doesn't care. Okay? But he does care that you engage your mind with what is being told to you in the Scripture, and you say, I, I believe that. I understand what these apostles are claiming, and I trust that. I trust that Jesus was a real human, God in the flesh, and that he died to save me as a sinner because I had no hope outside of him. And even today, no one has hope outside of Jesus. Those are all arguments from the Scripture. And, and Peter says, use your mind to go and remember that and be stirred up. And, and so God doesn't call you to be an intellectual. He doesn't um, call you to be an academic. But he does call you to be rational, to listen to arguments, to assess arguments. Because you are constantly given arguments. You are constantly being compelled by the world or the flesh or the devil, by your own desires. They make arguments to you. They say, if you don't eat this today, you will be miserable. That's an argument. If you don't look at this image, you will be miserable. Right? And so you have to think about it and you say, okay, that's the argument I'm hearing from my flesh. I, I want that. I desire that. But then there's a counter argument. Jesus has said, don't look at that image. Don't lust after that in your heart. Don't look at it. Guard your eyes. And so you've got to decide. Use your rational faculty. Who am I inclined to, to trust? This, this brokenness in me? that I know will leave me empty and unsatisfied and miserable? Or do I trust what Jesus has said? That, hey, deny yourself those certain broken pleasures for a superior pleasure in following me, in obeying me. Trust me, you won't regret it. Which one are you going to listen to? 
That's the kind of rational uh, use of your mind that Jesus calls you to. And so that's not the sermon. I just just a bullet point for you that Peter writes. He says, remember the scripture, because if you go to that, it will stir up your mind, your sincere mind by way of reminder. Don't forget. Don't think I can just close my Bible and set it over here and never listen to the prophets and apostles and make it and be okay. He says, no, no, you need to go back and have your mind stirred up and be reminded of what is true because you forget. Um, So that's end of that bullet point. But but in stirring up that sincere mind by way of reminder, he says, and there's one thing I want you to remember in particular in this case. So he's writing to these hearers, says one thing I want you to remember in particular, and that is that scoffers will come. Right. Verse three, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So he says these guys will come and they will question what the prophets and apostles wrote or told you or taught. They'll question that. They'll seek to undermine the authority of the prophets and apostles. They will mock it. They will scoff at it. They'll laugh at it. They're undermining the authority of what we have now as the scriptures, the teaching of these prophets and apostles. And this is what strikes me the most, I think, of of this little section. He says they will offer evidence and arguments against what you've been taught. These guys are, are not just saying, hey, don't listen to those guys. They're offering evidence. What I just said, they're offering arguments. What do they say? They're saying, look around you. Everything keeps going the way it's always gone. Right? Where is the promise of his coming? Jesus said he's coming back. But ever since our fathers fell asleep, everything keeps going the way it's been going. How am I supposed to believe what Peter's saying when the world exists the same way it existed 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 300 years ago? They keep going back and they say, everything just keeps going so you will be stupid to listen to Peter. And, and Peter just says, don't buy their argument. Okay? They're, they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? Everything keeps going the way it's been going. That's really a terrible argument. Peter's going to give us some good rebuttal to it. But that's a terrible argument. Peter says, don't buy it. Because the argument is essentially, well, Christ hasn't come, so therefore he's not coming. Right? That's what they're saying. Where, where's the promise of his coming? He hasn't come back yet, so he's not coming. Right? Everything keeps going the way it's been going. But I just want not, to not make fun of that argument necessarily, because Peter does give it a little bit of credit, because he goes to, to great lengths to argue against it. But um, I just want to point out, that's a very modern argument. Right? You've heard these kind of arguments before where people say, look around you. Look at everything you can see and understand. Look at all that science has given us. I love science. I'm fascinated by biology in particular. When I look at the way little creatures that I can't even see with my bare eyes work, I'm blown away. Okay, We see all these things, and, and there's a very modern argument that says, look at these things that we understand now. Look at these things that we see, and then they... They say, look at history, look at the past hundred years and all the evil in the world. All right. Look at the evidence in nature and then all the evil in history. How can you how can you believe in a good God who created everything and controls everything? How can you have faith in that? Look at everything that we can see. 
Everything that we can understand, your faith can't be true. That's, that's the air we breathe today. And it's just assumed in, in the, what do you call it, majority culture, I guess. It's just assumed that this is not true. This can't be true. What we believe as Christians can't be true. Because look at the world and look at evil in history and look at all these bad people. If there was a good God who controlled everything, this wouldn't be happening, right? So Peter says, I say, first of all, that's a terrible argument. He hasn't come. Look, Christ is not here, so he's not coming. But then Peter gives us a gracious rebuttal to that, a fuller explanation for why that's a bad argument, why you shouldn't buy that today, just like his hearers shouldn't, buy, shouldn't have bought that when he wrote this. He says in verse 5, For these people who talk like that, they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged or deluged with water and perished. So Peter says that the folks who talk like that, they may reference history. They may say, look at Hitler. Look at that atrocity in history. How can you believe there's a good God who would allow that kind of stuff to happen? They may reference history But Peter says they don't go back far enough. If they went back in history, they would remember, wait a minute, this this may be true. He says they deliberately overlooked the fact that God created the world out of water by his word. And then he used that water at the command of his word to completely obliterate the world that was once before. The world that existed then. Okay, notice that order. He created the world. He let it exist for a while, and then he obliterated it with water. Okay? There's the sequence of events. Um, There was a time when it was newly created. There was a time that he let it exist, and there was a time that it was destroyed. And Peter says that in the same way that that happened, the world that now exists is stored up for fire, and it is being kept. It's an interesting turn of phrase there. It is being kept for judgment with fire. God is letting it exist just like he let that world exist. But just like he destroyed that world with water, it says he could easily do it again and he will do it again. But this time it will be with fire. Okay. Hopefully you see that argument. He's saying this is the way it happened last time. This is the way it happens this time. So then it begs the question, why is he delaying? Why, is, why does he do it that way? Why does he create the world and then let it exist for a while and then enact judgment on it? Why not just pluck some people out of it, do away with the rest of it, and let's move on? Why is he doing it this way? And uh, Peter gives us, this is the part I wanted to get to. Peter gives us the answer. He gives us a brilliant, breathtaking argument here. It says in verse 8 and 9, do not, look, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there are two parts to Peter's reasoning here for why the Lord has not returned yet. And the first is kind of a rebuke. He kind of checks us like in hockey, right? He just, he's going to knock you off balance a little bit, check you up against the wall for a second. And then he's going to 
kind of catch you and say, let me give you some hope. Let me give you a hope-giving explanation for why God delays. So first, the rebuke. He says, the claim of the false teachers is that Christ has not come back yet, therefore he's not ever coming back. And Peter says, remember, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. What's he saying there? He's saying, guys, it hasn't even been a day yet. You're already doubting him? I mean, when he wrote this 40 years or so after Christ left and promised to return, if you're using that standard of time, it's about an hour, right? So Peter kind of looks at you and says, it's been an hour. You're already losing your mind here. You're already being swayed by these doubters. And God, Christ has been gone for an hour. I call that a mild rebuke because I think that's Peter's way of saying, remember, don't put God in your box, okay? Don't measure him by your finite understanding of the universe. Don't measure him according to what you think is right or what you think should happen. Don't constrain him to your conception of time and reality. He is not bound by time or space, and he does not answer to you, okay? He's the God of the universe, and he can take as long as he wants to do whatever he wants to do. So if he takes a day, or if he takes two days, or if he takes a hundred days, it's not an unreasonable delay. He has a purpose in it. He is intentional in doing that. So that's Peter's kind of gut check to us. If, if you are inclined to believe that argument, just remember... Don't impose your understanding of the way things should be on God. He doesn't answer to you. You answer to him. Okay? To rest in that, understand that, and don't, um, don't buy that argument that if he hasn't come, he's not coming, and he's delaying unreasonably. Okay? But Peter doesn't stop there. He could just use his apostolic authority, which he's already established for us, and he could say, hey, God can do whatever he wants. Deal with it. Right? He could just throw that on you and say, deal with it. But once again, he engages our rational faculty. He gives us an argument. He graciously says, I want to help you understand what he's doing. And here's how he explains it. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The only word I can think of for that is breathtaking. That is amazing that he just said that. Not only does he kind of check you and say, hey, remember, you don't run this whole system. But then he says, just just relax, rest, because what God is doing in this delay that's causing you so much stress is good and gracious and merciful. And, and so he defends God's God's sovereignty and his ability to do whatever he wants. And then he defends God's loving, merciful, gracious character all in just one paragraph. I, I think that is brilliant and breathtaking. And, and so let me put some feet to that. What Peter's saying, I think, and if I were going to summarize it in my words, all the scoffing of these false teachers, all the doubting, all the undermining, all the questioning of what God is doing in the universe, God tolerates Because of this, because he loves his people. He puts up with it. He deals with it. He hears these guys. He knows what they're saying. He sees his people sometimes harassed by by false arguments and deceit. And God deals with it 
Because he loves his people. He longs for his people to come to him and to rest in him and to repent. Okay? God has judged the world once with water, obliterated it. He will do the same with fire. We'll see in a minute. He promises he will come and he will judge with equity. And yet he delays because if he came today, there are some people who have not placed their faith in Christ. They have not rested and trusted in Christ. They have not run into this protective person God has given us in Christ. They have not put their trust in him. And so if he comes today, they would be subject to that judgment. They would receive punishment and condemnation just like Peter says in chapter 2, the false teachers are going to get because they don't trust Christ. So if God came right now, some people would not have that security in Christ. But maybe if he waits in a month or a year or five years or a hundred years or 2,000 years, there are people that he says, hey, you will be mine. You will trust in me and I will wait until you come to me, I will wait for you to repent. And I'll just tolerate this. I'll just, I'll just deal with these people who are undermining what I've said. I'll let them sit while I'm waiting on you. Until you come and trust in me. And when those people embrace Christ and they trust him for forgiveness and righteousness, they will receive nothing but grace and mercy from God. They won't receive judgment. And so God says, I'm going to wait for that. Because I love my people. I'm going to wait for them. That that is the character of God. He is patient and he is loving and he is merciful to us and he is not napping. He is not slow. He's not dragging his feet. Okay? He's not a bad builder, right? You know the promise where he says, I go to prepare a place for you, right? God's not standing there with screws in his hand wondering, how do I put all this together? No, he's not, he's not bad at what he does. He's not delaying unnecessarily. He is waiting. He's patiently waiting and watching. And as sinners repent of their sin and they trust Christ, the Bible says there is rejoicing in heaven. There's rejoicing among the angels. And Jesus, I think, says, we're closer. We're closer. We're getting there. Just a few more. Um, I, I just think that, that is brilliant to me. That, that is, I want to put my hand over my mouth and say, I will not doubt. God, I will not Look at what you do for good and turn it into cause to doubt you. We'll see a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, but I, I, when I first wrote this sermon a couple of days ago, I had this big block in here that I was ready to take us on this big scenic detour through Calvinism, okay, through the doctrines of grace, because... Some of you read that Second Peter 3, 9. If you are persuaded like me that God is sovereign in all things, including salvation, some of you have, have been beat up by this verse. You've had people say, hey, God can't be sovereign in salvation because, look, Peter says that he, he is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some men count slowness, but he is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, so God can't be sovereign in salvation because... It says that he wants all people to reach repentance. And so I, I had this big, long argument. I'm, I'm, I don't think there's anything in that verse that doesn't fit with God being sovereign in salvation. That, I, I, don't, I get frustrated when people rip that verse out and throw it on the table and say, look, well, what you say can't be right. 
And they completely, they never deal with Ephesians 1. They never deal with Romans 9, right? They never deal with Isaiah where God says like the, like the water comes down and the rain comes down and waters the earth and produces fruit. So is my word. It will prosper in the thing for which I sent it to prosper in. They don't deal with that, right? They just throw this verse on the table and say, God can't be sovereign. He can't be in control. I know I've just opened this can of worms, right? Uh, and I'm not going to be able to go into all this stuff that I wrote um, because I think that's an in-house argument. You know at Three Rivers, we don't divide over that. If you disagree with everything I just said, I'd love to talk with you. You know, I think there's important things to understand about who God is and how he deals with people. Um, but we're not going to divide over that. Okay, that's, that's not a primary issue that you agree with my understanding of how people are saved. Okay, but there are a lot of us who, who believe that here at Three Rivers, and there is glory there. And so don't use this verse to just rip it out and say that I disproved hundreds of years of theological teaching with this one passage. How did all these guys miss this? They didn't miss it. Okay. But I pulled that out and I'd love to give it to you. I'd love to talk with you about it. So come see me. But I I pulled all of that out of the sermon because as I was reading through it, I thought that's fun and good and I think helpful and I think there's a place for it. But it's not the point of the text. It's not the point of what Peter is trying to tell us. And I want to stay where Peter is trying to take us um, for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which is I don't want to be here till two o'clock. Okay, so I cut all that out. You're welcome. Um, but, But I do want to say there's something good for me. Thinking through all of that, and I hope it's good for you. And, and it's a quote by Charles Simeon that um, has just, it's just hit me several times and been very good for me to chew on. Charles Simeon was a British pastor a couple hundred years ago, and he says, or a hundred years ago, um, and he says, talking about verses like this, where some people look at it and they see one thing, and some people look at it and they see another thing, and everybody wants to argue for their position. Charles Simeon says, of this He, he's talking about himself, the author. So he's writing in a book and he says, of this, the author is sure that there is not a decided Calvinist or Arminian in the world who equally approves of the whole of Scripture, who, if he had been in the company of St. Paul when he was writing his epistles, would not have recommended him to alter one or other of his expressions. But the author would not wish any one of them altered. He finds as much satisfaction in one class of passages as another and employs the one he believes as freely as the other. Where the inspired writers speak in unqualified terms, the author thinks himself at liberty to do the same. Judging that they needed no instruction from him how to propagate the truth, he is content to sit as a learner at the feet of the holy apostles and has no ambition to teach them how they ought to have spoken. I stand humbled by that, okay? I, I still would argue with you that there's nothing in Second Peter 3, 9 that goes against God being sovereign in all things. But it is a good heart check for me. Do I go to that verse and see the glory that is in it just as much as I go to Romans 9 and see the glory that is there? And Charles Simeon said, if I were sitting with Paul, I wouldn't want him to change one thing. And if you look at passages of Scripture and you think, man, if I had been sitting with Paul, I would have said, why don't you clarify that a little bit for us? Simeon says, check yourself. Check yourself. He says, I am anxious to sit at their feet and learn and understand there is a reason inspired by the Spirit that these apostles wrote these things and left some ambiguity there and wrote things certain ways so that we could sit here today and learn from them. Um, So, 
all of that to say that's not the point. The point of Second Peter 3, 9 is not does God want everybody to be saved or just some people to be saved or whatever. Regardless of where you land on that issue, the point is this. Peter says in verse 15 of chapter 3, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. The false teacher said, God hasn't come, and he's obviously not coming, or therefore, he's obviously not coming. Look around you. Everything keeps moving the same way it always has. And Peter says, God delays his judgment out of mercy, patiently waiting for the repentance of his people. So the point is, don't turn God's mercy into a reason to doubt him. Okay? When God does something For the good of his people, it is shameful to look at that and say, well, if God were good or if God were trustworthy, he wouldn't do it this way. Don't do that. And that's true in a thousand areas of life. I'll give you one example. James says that we should count it joy when we encounter trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. Okay. God is always working to make his people like Jesus. And sometimes the tool he uses for that is suffering. It's, it's trials. It's hardship. He gives that to you for your good. So James says count that as joy. Be happy that you have hard things in your life that make you like Jesus. Okay? He says rejoice. That's not an easy thing to do. But what you should never do is find yourself in a difficult circumstance and say, well, if God were good, he wouldn't do this to me. He wouldn't put this on me if he cared for me. That is shameful and, and disrespectful to God and hurtful and, and dishonoring to him. So just like that, Peter's saying, don't turn God's delay, which is intended as mercy. Don't make that the grounds for you doubting what he said. Don't do that. You know, there's a command in the Old Testament that says you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It's put some what seems like random places sometimes in the Old Testament. It's a couple of places. And I read it and I'm like, there's no context to help me here. What is that talking about? And I think it's kind of related to this. They said, don't, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk, meaning why is there mother's milk? It's intended to nourish and to help the young goat. It's intended to, to care for and provide for that goat. Don't take what was intended as nourishment and good and turn it into a means of death. Don't take God's delay, which is intended as good for his people, and turn it into reason to doubt and to abandon your faith and to wind up being destroyed, being condemned, because you couldn't trust that God's doing good in what he does. That's the point of this passage. So to don't do that. Um, so I, we, we maybe should stop there. Um, I, I don't know. We're not going to stop there, sorry. If, if we stop there... I just checked the clock. We've got a couple of minutes. If we stop there, then next week it's going to be a scramble. It's, we're going to be sprinting all the way through the end of, of 2 Peter 3. But don't miss that. We'll recap that in a few minutes. Um, but verses 10, 10 through 13, let's just look at them very quickly. 
Peter says these false teachers are denying the second coming and they are missing the truth that God has destroyed the world once and he will certainly do it again. And he gives us that certainty in verses 10 and 12. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then verse 12, and when that day of God arrives, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So the first time God brought judgment on the whole earth, it was with water. And Peter says, That kind of whole earth judgment is coming again, but this time it won't be with water. It will be with fire, okay? And it's not just any fire. Peter says the heavenly bodies will dissolve. They will melt as they burn. That's an intense fire. God is bringing judgment. He is bringing, he's enacting justice on the world. But notice the distinction Peter makes in verse 10. The heavenly bodies, the planets will melt at this fire, But one thing is not going to dissolve. One thing is not going to melt. He says, the works that are done on earth will not be burned up, but they will be exposed. Why does he do that? Why does he say that? If you're hoping for annihilation at the end of life, if you're hoping, hey, I'm just, I don't have to trust. I don't have to rest in Christ. I don't have to trust on him today. I'm just going to live my life. And then when I die, oblivion. When I die, everything disappears. The record will be expunged. There will be no record of me ever having lived here. So I'll just try to be as happy as I can. And then it's over. Peter says, not so. That's not the way it's going to work. Everything will not just be poofed away and and it's gone. He says, at the end end of time, Jesus will burn everything away except the deeds that have been done on the earth so that they will stand out more clearly. Right? They will be exposed. Why that focus on deeds? Why will the deeds be exposed? Why does he say everything will be burned away except faith? Right? God will enact justice. He'll burn away everything but faith. Because faith can stand through fire. And those who have faith will will be brought into eternity. Well, he doesn't say that because he's consistent. He doesn't say that because he fits with all the other teachings we see in the New Testament such as faith without works is dead. It's no faith. Or that, as we saw in chapter 1, external, holy, godly living is the evidence of faith. Not all people have faith in common, but everybody has deeds in common. Everybody does things. We all do things in the course of life. And for some of us, we do that out of faith to honor our Lord. We, we trust in him. We rest in him. And we say, any good I have, it's because of what you've given me. And I will persevere and do good out of that promise that you've given me, God. But some people don't do that. They, they just do things. They just live out of unbelief or out of greed or anxiety or lust or whatever. Just to, to be happy apart from Jesus, they just live. And so Peter says at the end of time, God will burn everything away except those works. And he will look at them and he will say, he'll look at these works and he'll say, watermark. I see the evidence. I see the sign of authenticity. These deeds are done out of faith. They honor me. They, they bring honor to my name. Those deeds, not so. The, the, remember all the talk we had a couple weeks ago about the evidence that deeds are the evidence of your faith? That's what Peter is alluding to here. Um, So some people he'll say, hey, there's evidence. There's the watermark that this was mine. These deeds were done in faith. And he'll look at others and he won't see that. 
and say, I don't see this sign of authenticity here. Um, and I think this is what it means when all through the New Testament, don't get hung up when you read that we will be judged according to works. We will be judged according to our works. Some people see that and they say, that can't be true because I'm saved by faith, not by works. So I can't be judged by works because I'm saved by faith, right? I'm not saying that any work will be perfect or that any work will merit salvation, but every work will point to a source. Every work will have a, a distinguishing mark on it saying, here's the root. Here's where this came from. It all comes from somewhere, and it will be clear what that root is when everything else is burned away. And, and God will look at those works. And he'll say, this was done with faith. This was not done with faith. And I think that's why Peter says in the next verse, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since everything's burning away, he doesn't say go hole up in a mountain somewhere and just wait, right? He doesn't say, hey, this whole world is burning, so don't get attached, don't get involved, just kind of hole up on your farm and stay there. And I promise I'm coming, just wait for me. No, he says, since these things are going to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Precisely because everything will burn, everything will be dissolved, and our works will be exposed, you should be diligent to obey God in faith and live a holy, godly, practical existence, right? You should work out that salvation. Or to quote chapter 1, you should be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Remember that, chapter 1? If you practice these qualities, there's the distinguishing mark. And so I, I get this image in my mind of God dissolving everything. Here are your works. And some people can offer their works to him and say, I did this dependent on you for your glory, for your honor. Here are my works. Please take them as, as praise to you. And other people will be looking for somewhere to hide. Don't look at my works. Don't look at them. Let me hide somewhere. And God's just dissolving everywhere they could hide. He says, it's gone. You will be exposed for what you trusted in. I, I think Peter has Malachi 4 again in mind here. We alluded to that a couple of weeks ago, and I really think he pulls a lot from there. And so to wrap up, let's just look at that. Malachi 4, he says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. When Jesus returns in glory, that day will be like an oven. Okay? He will bring judgment with fire to the earth. And that fire will either be death or it will be healing. I, I love that picture malachi gives us it's one event it's one event coming the the son of righteousness rising he's coming to the earth bringing his judgment with him one event and for some it is a destructive oven leaving them no root or branch it's destroying everything that they've ever hoped in right and for those who trust in christ and rest in his salvation it's like the sun in april it's been a cold, dark winter, and then one day you walk out and you think, oh, it's spring. I feel the sun. I feel the warmth from the sun. It's, it's invigorating. It, I feel alive right now. 
it's warmth and it's comforting and it's healing. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. That's what's coming. And Peter says, those who rest in that promise of Jesus, those who long for that coming and trust in Christ for their righteousness, those are the ones for whom it will be healing. And those who, like the false teachers, doubt and undermine and refuse to obey Christ, it won't be warmth and healing. It will be warmth and punishment. So what do we take from Second Peter 3, 1 through 13? What do we get out of this? I think there's two things. One, what we talked about, don't use the Lord's mercy as reason to doubt him. Whether that mercy is, is trials and suffering or whether that mercy is delay in, in exacting justice or vindicating you or giving you something that you think you need desperately, don't use that. He delays those things for your good. And he does a thousand other things for your good, even though you don't always understand them. So don't begrudge him that. Let him be your father. Know that he knows more than you know. And trust in that. And know that he's working everything together for your ultimate enjoyment of him for eternity. Rest in that. No, hey, it's hard now, but Lord, you have promised that one day everything will be all good all the time. Infinite joy pouring out of me endlessly. Wait for that. Don't get mad right now. Wait for that. Trust for that. And then the second thing, verse 11. While you are waiting for the Lord's appearing, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So I just say, don't surrender. While you're waiting, don't give in. Don't say, I'm not going to fight to be holy anymore. I'm done. It's hard. I'm tired of it. Don't be a wimp. Don't, don't give up on that. Don't surrender. Don't grow weary in doing good. Look, I labor and I labor and I labor and nobody ever acknowledges it. Nobody ever sees all this good that I'm doing in the world. Don't get that way. It's seen. He sees. He knows. But every morning cry out to God and say, Lord, I will face a hundred decisions today and a hundred challenges and trials. Give me wisdom. Give me strength to use every one of those to bring honor to you. Let me live. Let me do things. Do deeds that bring honor to you out of faith. Make me a righteous, holy, authentic image bearer for you. And then, according to verse 13, if you haven't read yet, haven't mentioned yet, according to verse 13, always remember that once Christ has brought his final judgment, he will give us a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. See that? A new heaven and a new earth where righteousness is the norm. It's where righteousness exists. And that is everything in that new heaven and new earth. Wait for that. And that is where we will enjoy the good pleasure of the Lord forever. It will be nothing but good. Nothing but joy. Wait for that. Don't give up now. Don't doubt now. Long for that. Wait for that. Let me pray. Father, make that true in our hearts. May we be people who wait for that, who rest in that, who trust in your goodness. And we say, I know you are bringing a new heaven and a new earth. I know anyone who does wrong, who dishonors you here, who undermines what you say here, I know that you will bring justice and you will right every wrong. And, 
And Father, I pray that we would long for that as your people. Lord, um, help us not to fall sway to these deceitful arguments that inevitably come. That you're delaying. You're not here. How, you're not coming if you're not here already. That's a bad argument, Father. May we trust your word and not those who seek to undermine you. Father, um, send your son. We long for that. We want to see him. We want him to be honored. And make us people who look like him and bring honor to him and live holy, godly lives that point people to him. That the world may see our good works and glorify you on account of your son. Please do that in us, Father. You are good and we trust you and we don't doubt you. And we know that you will come and you will right wrongs and you will give us a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.